Former NASA astronaut Kathy Sullivan is making history and an incredible splash. She is now the first person to visit both space and the deepest place in the ocean. In the summer of 2020, Kathy Sullivan entered the history books with a rather curious title, The Most Vertical Woman in the World. The 68-year-old former NASA astronaut was already noteworthy. We have SRB ignition and the history's largest astronaut crew is on its way. She was a veteran of three shuttle missions in the 80s and 90s and was the first US woman to conduct a spacewalk in 1984. But on June 6, 2020, Kathy Sullivan added something else to her list of achievements. She became the first woman to venture to Challenger Deep in the Mariana Trench, the deepest part of the ocean. When she surfaced from her dive, she celebrated the occasion by calling the International Space Station. This is the International Space Station. How do you read over? Kathy Sullivan on this end. We read you loud and clear. For Kathy Sullivan, this journey was another extraordinary expedition in a long life spent adventuring. Another chance to explore the unknown and push the boundaries of human achievement. Sullivan has ventured 250 miles above the surface of the Earth and nearly seven miles beneath it, exploring two worlds that seem vastly different from one another. But her experiences in space and the deep ocean share a lot of similarities. High-tech machinery, a vast black abyss, and the overwhelming realisation that our planet is remarkably fragile. I'm Claire Riley and this is Making Space. For someone who's been to space three times, Kathy Sullivan is remarkably down to earth. She's so matter of fact about what I consider to be one of humankind's greatest achievements. Like most children growing up in the 50s and 60s, Kathy Sullivan was certainly fascinated with space, but she wasn't really one of those kids who wanted to become an astronaut. The men flying on the Mercury and Apollo missions didn't look like her. They were test pilots, engineers, buzz-cut men who'd worked their way through the military and graduated from fighter jets to space rockets. Kathy Sullivan was more interested in life here on Earth, particularly in Earth sciences. She was fascinated with how the Earth fit together, giant tectonic plates pushing up against each other deep beneath the ocean. She went on to get a PhD in oceanography and specialised in marine geology. But as she got older, there was one thing about going to space that really captured her imagination. I'd grown up with the space age uh, as a youngster in the United States and had absorbed, I think, everything that was written or televised about every single mission. But had also always been particularly fascinated by the views of Earth that the astronauts sent back. Uh, I had a lifelong fascination with maps and geography that goes back as far as I can remember. To personally be able to see that view rather than looking at someone else's photos was just a prospect I couldn't resist. Kathy came of age at the perfect time. She'd grown up seeing the Mercury men on TV climbing into their tiny one-man space capsules. But by the time she graduated with her PhD in 1978, the Mercury and Apollo missions were a thing of the past. NASA had entered a new phase of space discovery, the shuttle era. The shuttle era begins. The orbiter is scheduled to fly up to 24 times a year. 
Suddenly, NASA wasn't just looking for jet fighter pilots or mechanical engineers. This new era of space exploration also opened the door to new astronauts. This is Shuttle Launch Control. We have now joined history's largest crew of astronauts in the operations and checkout building. Seated to Commander Crippen's right is Kathy Sullivan. She's a space rookie, of course, on her first mission. I was in the first group of astronauts that NASA selected to work in the space shuttle program. And the shuttle was seen more as a, a research and, and servicing platform and capability than just a means of getting back and forth. From main engine start, we have The mindset change was that it's, it's now time to start living and working in orbit. And so as NASA contemplated that, uh, in the late mid-70s, late-70s, they realized they would need a different mix of engineers and scientists, as well as top-flight test pilots to fly this magical flying machine. Fly like an eagle. Go. NASA was looking for mission specialists, and Kathy Sullivan was the perfect candidate. She'd spent her PhD leading research expeditions out in the North Atlantic Ocean, an unpredictable environment where anything could go wrong. Her job was planning for the what-ifs. What if the weather turns or the equipment breaks down? How do you train for that? And what spare parts will you need? In fact, the kind of person NASA was looking for? Kathy Sullivan had been that person her whole life. I sort of always seem to have the practical bent uh, in our family about even the mundane things like, how do we get all of this luggage into the back of this little airplane or into the car? Uh, I mean, it's just like this great jigsaw puzzle. Jigsaw puzzle with a purpose. Sullivan joined NASA in 1978 and became part of Astronaut Group 8, NASA's first diverse group of astronauts. The first women, first African-American astronauts, a group that finally started to represent a more accurate picture of America. Sullivan was used to being a first, at university, she was part of the first generation of women conducting field research as oceanographers. So I had you know, some acquaintance already with the mindset that uh, you're, you're not, people like you are not supposed to be here. You know, we've never had you here before. Kind of liked the way it worked before. Something makes, something's a little discomforting to have you here now. Um, so it was not an unfamiliar uh, mindset to encounter. She says she never experienced overt misogyny, but there was still a mindset, a sense that the first female astronauts would be scrutinised far more than their male colleagues. I do recall uh, that I was aware, and my other five uh, female colleagues as well, uh, that you know, we were going to be watched very closely. That's fair. You, you have to live up to the expectations and perform. That's fair. Uh, but that how well we did that and how well we handled ourselves otherwise, uh, would probably play quite a role in how wide or, or, or not wide the door swung open for women who might come behind us. The six women of astronaut group eight trained alongside their 29 male counterparts, learning shuttle systems and aircraft operations. They walked through simulations and trained in underwater tanks to help recreate weightlessness. But despite the giant leap towards equality, the women still faced their share of hurdles. There were questions about the physical limitations of sending women into space. There was the makeup kit that NASA developed for its female astronauts, so they'd still have access to mascara and lip gloss in space. And then there were the stupid questions. 
In 2002, Sally Ride recalled the engineers who asked her how many tampons she'd need for a one-week flight. Is 100 the right number? They asked. No, she said. That would not be the right number. Aside from some awkward moments, the women of astronaut Group 8 had proven they had the right stuff. And by the time Sally Ride took her first flight into space in June 1983, more than two decades after the US sent their first man into space, the door for women had swung wide open. But as the Challenger climbed today, it carried an American woman astronaut, Sally Ride, into space and into history. In October 1984, a year after Sally Ride's historic flight, Kathy Sullivan was strapped into a seat aboard the Space Shuttle Challenger. After a lifetime of exploring the ocean, she was ready for her next great journey. Almost four decades later, you can still hear the wonder in her voice as she recalls that day. But being pragmatic, she also knew she had a job to do. It's got to be a bit like an athlete who dreams of going to the Olympics and suddenly you're walking into the stadium wearing uniform of your country. It's some, it's a long pursued, long sought after goal that you realize is it's, it is now at hand. And those, those are really very, very special moments. Um, there's not a lot of time to bask in those feelings as you're strapping into a space shuttle. I mean, there's an awareness of them even, even in the moment, uh, but it's not, it, it's not what you're focused on in the moment. It can't be what you're focused on in the moment uh, because you've got things to do and life is about to get a whole lot busier when those uh, when those engines light. Mission Specialist 1, Kathy Sullivan, now boarding Challenger's cockpit. And check. Hi, Mr. You're coming in loud and clear. I'll be. Okay, you're coming in loud and clear too. I can't really imagine what it would be like to blast off into space. The excitement, the trepidation, the sheer terror. The movies have taught us that flying to space is thrilling, nail-biting and utterly beautiful. But for the astronauts travelling into low Earth orbit, it's an exercise in complete focus, making sure all systems are working, looking for the flickering dial or the light indicating that something's wrong. Still, less than 10 minutes into her first shuttle flight, when the engines shut off, Kathy Sullivan had a very human reaction to being in space. I saw this big blue and white arc of the Earth, and I absolutely couldn't help myself. It was absolutely breathtaking. And I blurted out, wow, look at that. 2,800 feet per second, distance downrange 20 nautical miles. Our engines have just cut off. We're still in the middle of very important checklists that make sure that we actually get all the way into orbit and get everything sorted out and settled down. So it's it's not the right time to blurt out, wow, look at that, and distract all of us from that important work. So I, eight and a half minutes into my very first flight, I got a minor admonishment from my commander. He, no, 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 not yet, not yet. <laughs> We're busy. <laughs> not my finest moment. And we have a nice picture of the Earth. Over her eight-day mission, Kathy Sullivan would get more chances to marvel at Earth. On October 11, 1984, she became the first American woman to conduct a spacewalk. It lasted three and a half hours, which is short for a spacewalk, but she was so focused on her work that her commander had to remind her to stop for a moment and appreciate the view. Floating around, feeling completely weightless, this wasn't the underwater training tank back in Houston. 
This was the real thing. Okay, I'm loaded now. There's no water around you right now. There are not scuba divers hovering nearby to keep you safe. And that big blue thing up there is not the surface of the water tank. That's actually now the earth. You know, at least take that moment to imprint that in your mind. Kathy Sullivan had been fascinated with the Earth her whole life, and now that she was in space, she had a whole new perspective. Orbiting around this big blue planet every 90 minutes, she saw 16 sunrises and sunsets every 24 hours. At the end of her day, when all her work was done and she was winding down to go to sleep, Sullivan would stop and take everything in. Those were the times that I could put on a pair of headphones and float up to the window and and just watch the earth go by and take in whatever sights were below you. One night passed, for example, and we were crossing from the daylit side of the earth to the night side of the earth and I was at the window looking down and the earth below me is dark. But the space shuttle was high enough that we were still brightly lit by the sun. And I had this moment of realizing there could be a little kid down there, right down there in that dark bit, There could be a little girl down there right now, looking up and pointing at the sky and saying, look, mommy, there goes a satellite. And she's pointing at me. And, you know, those kind of, there are are those sort of mind-bending moments every now and then where uh, it it, it always was in the back of my mind that it was extraordinary to be where I was, feeling so normal, listening to some tunes, maybe sipping a drink, and yet zooming across the planet at 17,500 miles an hour. And sort of, how could it feel so normal to be so extraordinary? Kathy Sullivan flew on her third and final mission in 1992. She logged a total of 532 hours in space, but her life of exploration wasn't over. She continued to fly as a private pilot. In 2014, she became the administrator for NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And then, in 2020, she got a call that would take her on a whole new adventure, to the deepest point in the ocean. I'm uh, Victor Vescovo. I'm the owner and founder of Caledon Oceanic, which is an ocean research organization that owns the deep submergence support vessel pressure drop and the deep submergence vehicle limiting factor. Victor Vescovo plunged nearly 36,000 feet in his watercraft to the lowest part of the ocean in the Pacific's deepest natural trench on the planet. Victor Vescovo is an explorer, submarine pilot and climber. He works in private equity, but he spends his spare time climbing the world's highest mountain peaks and diving to the bottom of the ocean. Picture an American Richard Branson, a silver beard and long blonde hair that wouldn't look out of place under a leather aviator's cap. The Dallas man who's climbed the highest peaks on every continent and now traveled to the deepest point any human has ever gone in the ocean. In 2019, he piloted the submarine that completed the Five Deeps expedition, the first manned voyage to the deepest point in the world's five oceans. His team travelled around the world, taking their submersible, the limiting factor, across the Atlantic, the Southern, Indian and Pacific Oceans, finishing up in the Arctic. 
When he describes the trip, he talks about diving to the Titanic, not because it was part of their mission, but because it was on the way. For dive four of the expedition, the team journeyed to the bottom of the Mariana Trench off the coast of Guam, the deepest ocean trench on Earth. Its deepest point is known as Challenger Deep. At bottom, repeat, at bottom. Thank you. Congratulations to you all. The mission was a success, but Vescovo wanted to go back. So he and his crew made a plan to take the limiting factor down six more times in 2020. But because it's a two-person submersible, the question soon turned to who should journey with Vescovo to the ocean floor. Dr. Sullivan uh, came across my desk when I asked other people, I really think it's about time and it's appropriate to take the first woman down to the bottom of the Mariana Trench because our field is unfortunately dominated in marine exploration by you know, middle-aged you know, white guys, which is unfortunate. And we're trying to broaden that out to a larger group. And so in asking people who they thought should go down, the same name kept coming up, and it was Dr. Sullivan, someone who had a PhD in ocean geology, who had been an astronaut, uh, the first American woman to do a spacewalk. So I uh, gave her a call, and we immediately hit it off. Sometimes you just find the right person for the right mission, and she was absolutely perfect for it. For Kathy Sullivan, a woman who'd spent her life studying the world's oceans, the opportunity was irresistible. The ocean as a whole is extraordinary to me. It uh, provides half of our oxygen. It makes our weather and climate work. It's, it's, it's essential to every bit of life on this planet. Uh, and these very deep zones, the, the, the part of the ocean known as the Hadal Zone, named after Hades, the netherworld, uh, that's the part of the ocean that's deeper than 6,000 meters. It's a tiny percentage of the ocean by area, and we just know terribly little about it. So, you know, what lives there? What, what kind of genetic material is there? Um, all those questions are still just barely being scratched at. So it's another one of the frontier unknowns that it's just intriguing to get to see and explore uh, with your own eyes if you're someone like me. You might have heard of it, but here's a refresher. The Mariana Trench lies in the Western Pacific Ocean, where the Pacific Tectonic Plate drives under the Mariana Plate. Its deepest point is 11 kilometres, or nearly seven miles, below sea level. You could put Mount Everest down there, and its peak still wouldn't reach the surface of the water. Before Vescovo and his team dived there on the Five Deeps mission, only three people had ever reached the bottom. One was Titanic director James Cameron. Each of the submarines that had gone to this part of the ocean had only been able to do the dive once. Vescovo and his team wanted a reusable craft to help keep costs down on future dives. So they created the Limiting Factor, a submersible that looks less like a traditional submarine and more like a big metal pillow turned on its side. Made from titanium and a special material called syntactic foam, it can withstand huge amounts of pressure and still stay buoyant. The uh, Mariana Trench is probably one of the most difficult, if not the most difficult place to get to on Earth. The pressure of the water when you get to the very bottom, which is just shy of 11,000 meters, is eight tons per square inch on every part of the submersible. And we need 90 millimeters of titanium in our pilot capsule just to keep that pressure out and keep us alive. 
The limiting factor is designed to withstand these pressures again and again. Think of it as the SpaceX Falcon rocket of the ocean, a single craft that can withstand multiple missions. But unlike designing for space, there are different limitations when going that deep in the ocean. When you go in a spacecraft from the surface of the Earth to outer space, you're going from one atmospheric pressure to zero. You're going to a vacuum. So the stresses on the craft are significant, but they're relatively straightforward. You just have to make sure that it stays pressurized and you don't lose your atmosphere. It's different going to the bottom of the ocean. You're going from one atmosphere to 1100. And what's really fascinating to people is once you get below about 5,000 meters or about halfway into a full ocean depth dive or about two hours, there literally are no photons in the water. There is no light. It is the most black black you can actually possibly see when you're looking out of the viewport. To save battery power, Vescovo kept the lights off during the dive. They descended about a metre per second, and it took them four hours. When they reached the bottom, the lights were switched on. And that's when the ocean floor slowly came to life through the small viewports on the sub. Cathy Sullivan finally saw with her own eyes as this desolate landscape slowly revealed itself. That experience really did bring back memories for me of watching and listening to the Apollo lunar landings, the eagerness with which we were gazing out the viewports, trying to catch that first glimpse of the bottom, uh, the moment where little bits of sediment start to be stirred up by our thrusters and by our bow wake. It made me think of hearing Buzz Aldrin say, getting some dust now as Apollo 11 was coming in for a landing. Picking up some dust. Um, and the surface itself that we were flying over was the sediment plain uh, portion of the deep. And uh, moonscape was the word that kept coming to mind. Okay, the goal was to travel along the trench and precisely measure its depth and geography. But along the way, they also got a sense of the ocean life that exists down there. Translucent sea cucumbers that blew away in the wake of their thrusters like tumbleweeds. Long tracks in the sediment made by unknown creatures. Holes with spurts of sand shooting out, hinting at something burrowing beneath the surface. They even recorded audio while they were seven miles underwater. A specially designed hydrophone from NOAA recorded the sounds of the deep ocean, including whales and even the sound of an underwater earthquake more than 4,000 miles away. People like to say, well, the very, very bottom of the ocean is lifeless, there's nothing there. And nothing could be further the truth. That's the same thing people might say about a desert at first glance. It's just that the life is far more specialized and far more sparse but that makes it very special because it's in a very, very remote and hostile place. It did feel like a very alien moment. Who, you know, who was the more alien, us or the lander or the denizens that naturally live there is an interesting question. But even here, in this alien world, there are still traces of human contact. Even in this very remote, exceedingly deep place, even there, uh, debris from human society has been observed. Uh, plastic bag, soda pop can, uh, microplastics in the guts of some of the organisms. So it seems far removed when we think about geography and physical distances, but you know, the data and the science make a very clear point that not even these seemingly very remote parts of our planet are in fact unconnected from us. And that's something that stayed with Sullivan. 
In fact, for her entire career, whether she was floating above our planet or descending below its surface, Kathy Sullivan has gained a deep appreciation for just how precious our planet really is. If we muck up how we live and work with the ocean, we are mucking up with the fundamental circuit in our very own life support system. Uh, the ocean is absolutely integral to every bit of life on this planet. So overfishing, seabed mining, whatever next things we think are economic frontiers in the ocean, uh, I think we need to keep in mind that they will impinge on uh, the life support system that every single human being and other living creature on this planet depends on. When she resurfaced from Challenger Deep, Sullivan called the International Space Station from the bridge of the expedition ship. She spoke to astronauts Bob Behnken and Doug Hurley, who'd just flown to the ISS on the SpaceX Crew Dragon, the first privately funded, fully reusable spacecraft. There was a nice parallel with her journey in a privately funded, reusable submarine, what she calls an inner spacecraft. It was a moment of recognition. Just like those early space shuttle days, the world had just entered a new era of exploration. Congratulations on your scientific accomplishment as we're trying to accomplish the same on the International Space Station. Kathy Sullivan is still exploring the world, but aside from her recent record-setting dive, she says her adventures these days are a little more sedate. I do still like to explore a bit, but uh, you know, I've had such a you know, such a rich buffet of, of exploration in my life so far. I find now what I like to do is uh, return periodically to a small number of favorite places. So it is continued learning and exploration in that sense, but uh, a rather calmer, rather less hazardous, and almost always really much more comfortable than my earlier explorations. The history of space discovery is marked by iconic moments. The first man in space, the first steps on the moon, but for Kathy Sullivan, the most vertical woman in the world, the journey to space was really just one small step in a lifetime of exploring a truly remarkable planet. And thanks to Kathy Sullivan, the door was swung open to anyone who is willing to venture beyond the possible, to the women and men who are fascinated by our planet and the place it holds within the universe. There's really no barrier to exploration. All that's needed is a sense of adventure. Space was produced by Claire Riley and Sophia Fox Sowell. This episode was written and recorded by Claire Riley in San Francisco, California. The show was sound designed and mixed with additional audio production by Stephen Beecham in South Lake Tahoe, California. Additional audio from NASA, the Five Deeps Expedition, IOS Expeditions, ABC News, and CBS News. Making Space is a production of CNET. Thank you.